Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and website, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I'm Natalie Walton, and this is Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. Each week, I'm here to share with you some of the biggest lessons I've learned during my career and life. Some of them I wish I'd learned a lot sooner because they would have saved me a huge amount of time, stress, and even money. Many of these ideas could have accelerated my journey as a creative and business owner. I also feature interviews with inspiring creatives, entrepreneurs, and experts to help you focus on what's most important in your life. Today, I'm going to interview interior designer Luella Wattel-Gill. But first, I want to let you know about a free ebook that I've created. It's for anyone who wants to learn how to create a home you love. Seven Days Your Guide to Styling Success is available for free to anyone who visits my website, nataliewalton.com. Just fill out the sign-up form and you'll get it delivered direct to your inbox. I can't wait to share it with you. Now on with today's episode. Hello everyone, I hope you're well. 
It's a beautiful sunny afternoon. It was quite cold this morning, so it's nice to see the sun shining and it's actually streaming through into my office, which is really beautiful. I can't wait to share today's episode with you with Luella Bortel Gill. She is someone who I've looked up to for many years. I've always loved her style and her energy. We've kind of our paths have crossed a few times over the years, but we've never actually met. And recently she moved to Bangalore, which is just down the road from me. So I took the opportunity to go and visit her gorgeous little cottage called Gypsy Creek. And we had a lovely conversation. So I hope that you enjoy it. There are a few little background noises a couple of times through the interview. I think at one point her cat tinkles on past and Luella's wearing some jingly bangles. So you hear those too. And I think there might be even a few motorbikes, but that's all part of the atmosphere. And it was really lovely to get to know more about her backstory. And I hope you enjoy it too. Luella, thank you so much for inviting me into your home today. It's lovely to finally meet. I feel like we've kind of been, our paths have been crossing a lot over the years. So yeah, I'm really glad so. that we finally get to um, to have a chat. So I guess, first of all, I just wanted to find out a little bit about your journey. And in particular, I always, I'm always interested to hear about people's childhoods and like the type of uh, home or environment that you grew up in and and how that's maybe informed the choices that you've made along the way. So do you want to share a little bit about that part of your life? And, sure. Yeah. Um, and hello. Very hello. welcome. Welcome. Um, is that going to be a problem with the cat walking around? No, no. Okay. No, no. That, that little bell is the yes, cat. Yes, no, it's good. Um, I grew up in England um, in the country in an old 300-year-old thatched cottage and it was the classic kind of, you know, Sundays were roaring fires and cosy. And um, my mother was a teacher and so kind of creative in terms of doing lots of craft and stuff like that um, and definitely had a strong feel for how she worked the house out. And she was really good spatially with working out where furniture went and she always made it feel right. Um, my father um, had a helicopter business and um flew helicopters still does he's 82 and he's off flying in north wales at the moment wow i know which is amazing um and he 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 could really draw he didn't draw much but he would do funny little cartoon drawings that were always really precise and amazing and i, I grew up as a child very much feeling like well I, I don't draw i can't i i would scribble and you know but i wasn't say at school, I was not that child that was like, oh, I, you know, I loved art classes, but I considered myself as somebody who couldn't draw. And there were all these girls in my class that were amazing. So I just kind of had the hat on for myself. I, I, I can't draw. So kind of on a creative, from a creative point of view, it wasn't until I was doing my um, A-levels that I actually started studying art. And it was because in first year of A-level, um, I was doing biology, couldn't bear it, was like literally dying of boredom <laughs> and just thought I've got to find something else. And I knew I loved design. I loved um, interiors. And so I thought, well, how do I get into that? And it was literally a case of how can I do a subject that I don't hate? And I thought, well, I'll give art a go. So I went to talk to the art teacher. He said, if you do me, um, I need something like, I think he said, I want 18 drawings from you over the summer. And I need you to do six still lives, six portraits and six landscapes. Just have a go and just see what happens. And the minute he said, go and do it, I just thought, right, 
I'm just going to try and do this. And I literally tried to draw. And I was really surprised. I was like, oh my God, I actually can do this. And I really enjoyed it. And my mother still has some of those drawings that I did that summer framed. Like I did portraits of my sister, you know, just in pencil, then with watercolor and, um, you know, quite big ones. And I really enjoyed it. I was like, my God, I can actually do this. Wow. And then I went to art college. So I did art college um, in Winchester um, for a year, a foundation course, and then went on to Leeds and studied furniture design and interior design. Um, And it was literally like I I felt like I fell into art and creativity, even though I suppose I'd always, from really young, I'd always probably every three, four weeks decided to totally change my bedroom around. And that has never stopped. It's like, you know, my, my desire to nest and kind of create spaces. That was something I always did, but I never really put any kind of name on what that was. It was just something that I did. Um, and then when I kind of went to art college and ended up realizing I just loved making things. And so I found a furniture design course where I actually got to be down in the workshop welding and you know, on the lathes and really full on making stuff with the technicians. Um, That's when I really found, felt like I'd found what I wanted to do. And then I just had to work out how I did it without necessarily jumping in to running my own business at 23, which I knew I didn't want to do because I hate paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Give me all the fun stuff. Fantastic. But I don't want to do all the rest. And that's when I got on board working for Terence Conran. Yeah. In London. Yeah. And so that was a very long answer, no, wasn't no, it? No, 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 no. It was great. It was great. Um, did you have any sort of mentors in that early part of your like teenage years or even like while you were at art college that really showed that it was possible to have that kind of career? Do you know what? I think um, when I was, I think both my parents made me feel always that I could do anything. It was very much instilled in me that as long as you did the work at school and studied, you'd have this good footing and then you could choose to do whatever you wanted to do and that it was important that you did something that you love. Um, Then when I was at art college, I remember going off to see all these different universities for um, degree courses and I met somebody up in Leeds Um, One of the students who was, I think at that point, maybe a second year student on the furniture design course, connected with him, kept in touch, met him up in London, used to go to art galleries with him. And he very much kind of coached me in terms of my application to that course. And he fully inspired me as somebody that I just looked at him and just went, like, it was never something. He was a friend. I I never went out with him. Um, But he's somebody I'm still in touch with. And he very much inspired me with his, he was so positive and had so much energy. And he had this life force that just said, you can do anything, you can be anything. I was like, oh my God, you're right. There, there is no closed door. You just, and I think that really um, something clicked in me and made me feel that that was how I felt. I just never really realized it. Um, so I think he really opened my eyes to how I could use what I love doing. That's amazing um, that you had like both your parents were like that yeah, in many ways. Yeah. And then to meet They've that person. They've both always been incredibly supportive. Um, and from one point of view, I think my mother sometimes kind of felt, well, how are you going to use this degree? What do you, 
And I was like, well, I don't know yet, but I feel like it's right. So she just went, well, if that's what you feel is right, go for it, do it, do it. And they fully, you know, supported that. Um, so, yeah, it was very much, there was a lot of positivity and that sense that the world was bigger. And I think that's something that's always been really strong for me and maybe why I jumped on a plane when I had an offer to come and work in Melbourne from London. Um, you know, the world was this place that was a huge place but obtainable. Um, so when I came over with Conran to help set up the store at George's um, in, God, 1998, beginning of 98, that was literally packing all my stuff up in London into a container, shipping it all over, and I'd never been to Australia before. It was literally like, well, I'm going to give this a go. This sounds fun. And I knew I could come back if I needed to, but it was always this open-ended, well, I, I'm, I didn't feel I wanted to continue living in London. It just didn't feel like my pace. And um, I got to Melbourne and I just didn't look back. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to backtrack <laughs> a little bit though. So you were doing your course yeah. and then how did you then get the position at Terrence, Con Terrence Conrad? Um, I mean, that that was be... quite random. That was quite random. So when I finished my degree course, for the summer holidays, I decided to work at the adventure playground working with kids in Battersea Park. And it was the most incredible adventure playground that it was big, crazy structures that the staff got involved with building. So it was very much hands-on. And my first project, when they realized I could weld, they said, can you make us a barbecue? Can you go and scrounge some metal? You know, they expected like, you know, a, an oil drum cut in half with legs on it. I ended up making them like a three meter high um, Tintin rocket. And the bottom of it kept, you know, was like all the coals. Then you had a middle layer that cooked everything. And we had a vegetarian side and a meat side. And then you had this door at the top that said afterburner and that kept everything warm. Um, and it was still there 15 years later. I think it's, they've taken the park down now, which is really sad. But um, I did that for the summer and then kind of had this, I used to go um, into the Conran shop um, and through talking to staff there, just working in the shop, I realised that the staff in there that were working just at the tills and on the floor there, they were all fully qualified, architects, designers. There was this hub of creativity in there. And it was like a, like a holding pattern for them. They were kind of in there working out what they wanted to do. So people would come, people would go. But it was this force of creativity. I was like, oh, this, this could be a really nice place until I work out what I want to do. So I got a job just working in the shop. And then got thrown in because they were short of people working on the visual merchandising team. And I ended up working on that team, which I absolutely loved. So I was up a ladder half the day with a drill in one hand, you know, and, um, and then I, you know, do the electrical stuff and ended shorting out the whole, the whole of Michelin house. And I'm like, oops, sorry, a bit too confident with my sad electrical skills. Um, but so kind of fell into it, um, you know, applied for a job, literally just working on the shop floor in sales just literally kind of you know shop girl and um and then fell into this opening in the um visual merchandising team which I just completely loved so, I was like oh my god this is fun yeah so tell me about that because obviously such an iconic business and store yeah. and man were there very strict parameters about what you were allowed to do or how like yes and no yes and no so process. it was a team of people five people um 
and there was um there was a, there was a very strict structure in terms of for example every six weeks there was a shop floor change which meant um changing every piece of furniture all the upholstery all the sofas and there'd be a whole color theme every six weeks whole new drop of all that upholstery would come in and we'd rearrange the whole floor and it was all strictly planned um and we'd start when the shop shut at six o'clock and we'd work all night um well we'd go home at about two in the morning and somebody would have either cooked a huge meal and we'd get a whole load of the other staff in we'd all be working around together and so all the um display team would be delegating going right i need five people over here quick run we need this two sofas to come off the truck that you know the delivery guys would be there working out the front it was this incredible energy and excitement and we'd run around and then we'd come back in at eight the next morning and then do all the little display on the tables and we'd, we you know we'd spend hundreds of pounds a week on fresh fruit and vegetables for the displays you know it was always somewhere where that was such a massive part of the selling t- tool um and there was a structure in terms of just as when you're designing um fashion there's that structure of when the drops are and you know there was a structure in terms of when we did things the um the swing area downstairs which was a whole display area in itself the windows christmas windows the formula with all of those but within that you had complete freedom to um create what you wanted like we would be given areas as a team there would you know five of us we would each it would be like right luella this area here and i'd be in charge of one whole area of the shop and it would be up to me to do designs on the table things from the ceiling work out have fun with it um so there was complete freedom with that in terms of how can you come up with something that's completely interesting and different and um but within a time frame i suppose a timetable that the timetable was the structure more so than what you could and couldn't do but you very quickly understood what was right for conran and what wasn't you know like for example we only ever used fresh fruit and vegetables never used fake flowers never used anything that wasn't just something you would have at home there was just a basic sense of i suppose integrity and it had to feel real and people had to walk in and fall in love with the space and it was that sense of making the shop read like a home so you'd walk in and go oh my god this sofa and Jesus, it's amazing with this coffee table. And they'd buy the whole lot. They'd literally buy the whole setting with the rug in that colorway because they'd, you'd created this emotional experience for them. Um, so, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a yes and a no. <laughs> a yes and a no. <laughs> and um, what about, so you said that there was this amazing energy there. Yeah. How do you think that he cultivated that within his business? I th- I think initially, well, generally, just the incredible respect everybody had for what he had created. You know, he had started the first shop which um, actually produced modern furniture at high street prices, you know, with Habitat. And that was unheard of. Um, So that was just huge. And then, you know, the Conrad shop was kind of the beautiful, um, I suppose, more elite, top end range of all that so you know and there was a price tag that went with it but there was this huge respect that you literally could always walk into the conran shop and be blown away by how beautiful the product was the the product selection you know he he has 
he always had a very um, tight, I want to say tight rein, but it's not really that. He was always very, very involved, even though he had a team of buyers that would go all over the world sourcing and they'd all come back and have these meetings and they'd all sit around. But at the end of the day, he had the say on every single thing that came into that shop. And I think the fact that he, so there was a, a I think just a respect. Um, but he, he, he wasn't based at the shop. He was based over at Shad Thames where he had an apartment and lived during the week. And that's where the contract, Conrad contract was. So they would do all the big contract jobs. And so he'd come over and sometimes he'd come over once a week, twice a week. Sometimes you wouldn't see him for a month. But we'd always know because his driver would call ahead and go, Terence is on his way. And so suddenly this call would go out in the shop, Terence is on his way. So everybody would be aware. Or sometimes his wife, Vicky, would come in and she'd go, Terence is round the corner, everybody, and he's in a real bait. Watch out. So and he could be quite scary when he would storm through and you'd go, okay, don't say hello today. Just keep quiet, look busy. Um, but when he was lovely, he was charming and completely gorgeous and would sit and kind of go, right, so tell me what's going on here today and have a really good chat. Um, so he wasn't involved in the day-to-day -day running of the staff in the shop, obviously, but he was very much, you know, he would always make a point of talking to people when he came through, um, which made the people that were new, like the young people that were really new there, they'd get really nervous when he came in because yeah. he is such a big figurehead. And do you think that your aesthetic at that stage was in tune with the Comran aesthetic? Yeah. Or yeah. do you think that that influenced it? Or um, I think it has to have to some degree, but everything I instinctively felt, I think, was very much in tune with what I was doing at Conran anyway, which is why the whole thing became very easy and fluid. Um, so it all just felt very natural. Um, and it's an interesting one. It, it, it is kind of like a philosophy, I suppose, the whole, um, it's that sense of keeping things very real, but having fun and theater with it. So there'd be times where we would do things that you would never do at home and, you know, stack chairs up in a big tower or you hang them from the ceiling and they'd be, but it was about being playful with it without it being forced. There's a kind of looseness to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it has to have had a strong impact on me aesthetically, but it all felt very natural. So it felt like it was something that just came to bear together as what I should have been doing. And, um, and why was it that you were the one tapped on the shoulder to come to Melbourne? Had you sort of gone up oh, through the ranks that at was, that stage? Um, or? No, it was, um, I think, so... Somebody that uh, has been really, really special in my life all the way through, and I've actually been in a five-year long-distance relationship with, is um, Alex Wilcock, who now has Maker and Son. He was the um, buying director and cre creative director at Conran at the time. And he would often turn up at the end of a shop floor change at 11 o'clock at night. He and Sophie, his wife and Terence's daughter, would have been out for dinner. He would jump out of the cab, roll his shirt sleeves up and go right um what can I do to help and he'd stay for a few hours and help and always muck in and he was kind of like our boss and I always got on really well with him um and he just came into the office one day and he said hey 
you want to travel, don't you? And, you know, we'd had conversations where I was like, oh, sometimes I feel like I'm just over London. And, and I said, yeah, I really do. And he said, what would you think about um, moving over to Melbourne? There's an opening in Melbourne. And it was because a year, a year before I'd had a meeting with him where I'd actually resigned um, and I'd got a job at Designers Guild down on the King's Road, kind of doing the same thing. And I just felt like I wanted to change. And he persuaded me to stay. And I was literally, I'll come and talk to you, but I'm not staying. I've got the job. I'm going, but I'll come and, I'll come and talk to you. Anyway, by the time I left, he'd convinced me to stay, told me there was so much happening that he didn't want me to miss out on and give me a pay rise. I was like, blimey. Uh, okay. I was not expecting that. And so here I was still at the Conrad shop. And he said, I told you there was a lot going on. We, that, that's when we opened the shop in Marylebone in North London, just off Baker Street. Um, so I did that. I went and did, um, uh, worked on, um, at, in Japan for a month at Fukuoka where they had a store. Um, and then he came in and said, there's this position in Melbourne and part of the contract is it's a franchise with, um, Steve Bennett, who was Country Road. Um, but we need somebody from our team here to make sure that the thing is handled in such a way that we still absolutely represent Conran. And we only do the sign off on this franchise if one of our team goes. Um, and I was like, I'm in. Totally, I'm in. Um, I was married and I went home and said to him, Audrey, hey, I've just been offered a job in Melbourne. And he's like, awesome, I'll resign tomorrow. <laughs> He'd lived in Melbourne before and just went, oh my God, brilliant. And um, I think six weeks later, all my stuff got packed up and we came, I think we went to Bali for two weeks on the way and arrived on New Year's Eve on the last night of 97. And the shop opened on the 14th of February in 98. Um, and, well, sorry, I was gonna say, and what was your initial sort of experience or feel for Melbourne or Australia when you first arrived? Because obviously you hadn't been there before. No, I'd never yeah. been. I, my godmother lived down on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and so I had a sense of, family here but I'd never been um and I arrived and I remember my godbrother picking me up at the airport or picking us up at the airport and within minutes I remember seeing a you know a cockatoo fly past and going oh my god yeah I was quite surprised at the size of these birds that you know I always used to you know the magpies being the biggest thing you saw really or um you know the robin redbreast and and wrens um and then Within a couple of weeks, I went for the weekend and stayed. Alex and Sophie had a house in Dalesford, a 50-acre property kind of off-grid, and it was just amazing. Himadri and I went and stayed there, and I woke up, and there was a kangaroo sitting outside on the deck, and I literally was like spun out going, oh, my God, I'm in Jurassic Park. It, was, it blew me away. Um, and I, it took me, took me years to get my head around the fact that there were no rivers in Victoria, there was like, where, where's all the water? I was like, hmm, doesn't rain. It's so dry. There are no, you know, I'd grown up where rivers were everywhere because, you know, in England it rains all the time. Um, but that sense of arriving in this country, there was a massive positivity. I remember almost falling over when I jumped on my first tram in, in uh, Albert Park to go to work and the tram driver beamed at me and said, morning. It's like, oh my God, you spoke to me. I was like, oh, hello, really shocked. You know, you get on the bus in London 
You never have a driver speak to you. Oh, God. You know, they're literally driving, no eye contact, that hole on the tube, no eye contact. And I get on a, on a, on a tram and then ding, ding, morning. It's like, wow, I like it here. Everyone's friendly. And there is, I think that, that it really, um, it seemed, it was something really strong, this sense that people wanted you to achieve something and do well and yeah, give it a go. And that, that came across really strongly compared to um, the feeling I always had in London, which was this much more, it was a heavier, more dour, kind of like, God, life's quite, str- quite a struggle. Um, it felt much more lighthearted and breezy. And the sun was shining. <laughs> that was nice. And so how did that project go then, sort of overseeing the, the Conrad store? Look, it was amazing, but... Um, they struggled financially, which meant within a few weeks of opening, I felt like I was being backed into a corner, being pushed to display stuff in a way that I didn't feel was correct on any level for Conrad. Pile it high, sell it fast. I was like, this is like, oh, it's like, it just felt wrong. And after six months, I was pulling my hair out going, oh my God, I can't do this. But if I'd left, I would have been on the first plane home because my visa was tied into work for four years. Um, and that's when I ended up, somebody came and um, sponsored me for residency and I ended up doing a whole load of event management stuff at the races and uh, marquee designs and stuff like that and they sponsored me so that's how I ended up staying. And the Conrad shop was open literally a year and then, and sad, you know, sadly, it's, it, it, it kind of died a death, um, George's, but the opening of that building and the renovation of that building that whole area just took off, but George's didn't, which was really sad. You know, everybody loved it, but, you know, they didn't have the backing to keep it going for the three or four years that it needs to become a proper destination. Um, anyway. So, so then how did you then, obviously, I guess what you're most known for then is working with Mark Tucky. So then how did that kind of come about at that point? Um, you know, so you did event management or yeah, styling. Yeah, so I how did, did you think? Um, the other side. I, I, when I left Conran, um, I was working for part of the year. I do a few months of the year working with an event management company um, in Melbourne doing designs for the races and I'd work with their clients. And, um, and then the rest of the time I was doing more kind of interior design work, doing retail spaces, doing people's houses. Um, and I met Tucky. Oh, I met Tucky and I'd spent about two years saying no I would not catch up with him or go out for dinner with him or whatever. And eventually kind of went, oh, okay, when, um, anyway, we got together and very, within about a week of us going out together, I got involved in the business and he was like, come on, come on, come on. I've been trying to get you to help for two years, but I was busy and I kind of was like, no, I don't think I want to get involved. Got involved and it was like having a lolly shop to play with. Um, so very quickly jumped in and did a massive amount of design work and did a whole new range of furniture, which was really good fun. Stripped back a whole lot of stuff that had been sitting around for ages and felt like it was a bit dated. Um, got rid of all the red timber, um, went much more kind of Scandinavian with it and then got my friend Rachel Castle involved um, to help us rebrand it. And she was like, you've just got to call it Mark Tucky. At that stage, it was called Ancient Modes. And she said, you've got to lose the name, got to call it just Mark Tucky. And he was like, oh, I don't know about that. It's a bit weird, isn't it? And she was like, no, it's really simple. It just is what it is. 
and she had had a branding agency with Alex from Conran. So she was a friend of mine that worked at Conran, um, but I didn't know well in London. And then we became really close when she moved back to Melbourne with her husband and family. Um, so that just started the whole, I basically, Tucky literally handed over all the creative. I took over that and with Rach, we put this really strong imprint of a brand identity on the business and we're really kind of quite, quite harsh with, right, we get rid of this, we get rid of that, that we don't need any of that stuff anymore. This, let's keep it really clean. And turnover doubled in the first year, which was amazing. Tucky was thrilled. He was managing the whole structure of how the business ran, all the strategy, and, the, um, and that's how it went on. Um, did, you, then, did you enjoy the designing process? Yeah, like the love furnishing? it. it yeah. Was that the first time that you'd actually put your furniture design No, I'd been designing use, stuff and having stuff made um, on a very small scale. Um, but, yeah, I suppose since college where I was drawing stuff up and you know, making stuff. Um, I'd been making stuff for clients, but just one-off pieces as opposed to things that were going into production. Um, but I would go in and work with the team who I loved at Tucky. Um, and I'd be in the workshop and we'd be pro prototyping stuff. And no, I mean, it was just, it was fun. It was really, really fun. Um, and, you know, the, the first couple of pieces I designed with the round tripod table, which is still one of the best selling tables, um, and the OXO round coffee table, they're things that are still very much key pieces that um, still do really well. Do you um, have a, like, would you like to do that again or more of that furniture design? Or do you think that yeah, you're look, more I love into it. interiors? I love it, but, and I still do do it. I still, um, you know, like when I'm doing a house for somebody, when I did, um, um, when I was still living in Avalon, um, I did a house for Justin Hems across the water and designed a great big island bench for him, um, really similar to the one I've ended up putting in here. Um, so I still love doing that. Look, yeah, I mean, I could quite happily jump in and go, right, I'll do that again because I do. I love seeing things created. But I think my favourite thing is creating spaces. So I love doing, you know, this is a really old table that I made before I knew Tucky. And I had a boyfriend who was also a furniture maker, um, um, an amazing guy called Ben Sibley, who still makes furniture, but is now very much an artist. And his father was an artist, Andrew Sibley. Um, so he made this for me. And I remember telling him that I was going out with Tucky. And he's like, oh, no, because <laughs> he was like, oh, there's competition, as in, you know, with, with work and stuff. Um, but um, so I don't know. I think it'll always be something where I will always draw up furniture and have it made. Um, you know, I still go back now. Tucky and I, you know, it was quite tricky when we divorced. and it was, But we're back at a point now where we're on good terms and it's all about managing the children and keeping them completely happy. And that's always been a focus, so, which has been great. Um, but I help him a bit with the business now and you know, which is kind of nice. It's kind of settled back down to like, you know, he'll call and say, hey, can you have a look at this? Can you work out, you know, if he's doing any homewares, which he's about to set something up here. Um, you know, I'm helping with the interior on that and then going through a homeware selection, um, which is good because it makes sense on, you know, as a whole for making sure everybody's happy. And if he's happy, the kids are happy. If the kids are happy, he's happy. I'm happy. You know, it's good. Yeah. Um, but 
I'm really busy doing a whole lot of interior projects up here, which I'm completely loving because I keep meeting these amazing people that become really close friends that I'm working with and we get completely overexcited about, oh my God, look at this thing I've just found. It'll be amazing. We can do this. And, um, and I found some amazing places up here for sourcing. And I'm starting to find places where I can go and get stuff made. But then I'll still put stuff through the Tucky Workshop. Um, so I'll send drawings through, get quotes from them and, um, and work it out that way, which is which it's good. It's a nice freedom to have when I know how they construct things and how they make things. I know I can totally trust. Right, can you just make this and it's, it's easy? Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about your design process as yeah. well because I think one of the, the questions that people often ask of anyone that really that's an interior designer or a yeah. stylist or whatever is people – I don't know, sometimes they get fixated on it too, is about this idea of like, what's your style? Like, what's your decorating style? Do you have something that you feel is like a common thread through all your different spaces? Because you did your place in Melbourne, which yep. was like, that was a terrace, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then like yeah. you had your beach house in Avalon yeah. and here now yeah. you're sort of a bit more in the hills. I think um, I tend, look, everything I do is very much about um, it being livable. It has to tell a story. Um, I'm not somebody that would just go shopping for furniture for a house for somebody and, you know, get everything from three different shops where you could do, make something really beautiful and comfortable, but it would feel like a showroom. Um, I'm much more about throwing a whole lot of stuff in that makes it feel like there's a whole story and a pattern of walking in and going, wow, feeling like these are things that have been collected over the years. And I think that's what makes it feel homely. When I do a space, it's all about wanting it to, it's nesting. It's just, I have this innate sense of like desire to nest. Um, so I introduce a lot of old pieces in with new pieces. And I think it's about having that kind of urge to make it feel like it's been always, it's always been like this. Um, you know, I love, I mean, you know, we're sitting here with these Danish chairs. These are absolutely my favorite chair ever. Um, and I love them because they, they are old. They're kind of, you know, they're late fifties. Um, they're beautiful leather. There's something about the integrity of them. They're incredibly comfortable. They're the Borg Morganson Spanish chair. Everything about them is just absolutely beautiful. And they're big and they're practical and women love them, men love them, but they have that patina of age. So they have a contemporary feel to them, but they're really old and bashed up and they've got stains on the leather and, you know, they've, they've had their own life. And I think it's things like that that make people feel comfortable when they come into a space. You can still add all the things that make it feel a bit more zhuzhi and a bit more, a bit more city and a bit more, you know, um, a bit more glamorous but for me I'll always pair them back to simpler pieces I think um although there's nothing minimal about my style <laughs> I love minimal and I love to have areas where I've got clear spaces um but I love little things too much and they tell stories you know I've got a cabinet behind you full of tiny little bits and pieces and it's just they're all little things where I know where each of them came from and that to me makes me feel comfortable in my space because it's like it's like having all your little friends around you or having all your animals around or um so how do you then balance that out i guess one of the things when someone does love 
pieces yeah. and collections, yeah. is, then how do you prevent it from feeling cluttered. too cluttered? So you give them a sense of order by creating something to for it to live in. For example, a cabinet, and it could be an old bashed up cabinet, but something that they can put all those matchboxes that they collect or whatever it might be, something to give it structure and order without it feel, feeling forced. But, you know, I think the biggest job you can do for somebody as a designer in a home is make the home work. So I've worked with a lot of families where we've looked at, you know, um, I've done a few mudrooms lately where it's literally made the family home work because suddenly it's like, right, kids, put all your stuff in there. They've got a place to put their school hat, their blazer, their school bag, their sports gear. They've got special, and the kids know where it all goes. So they go, right, put your stuff away. Bang, 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 bang. Instead of, where am I going to put it? If you can give um, a structure to all of that, which is often really hard because you go, how am I going to fit it in? Making things work so you, you know, storage is key. Um, it makes the space work better. Um, and it becomes easier for the, the whole space to function without it being a cluttered mess. So if you can keep, give, for any clutter that builds up, if you can give a space for that and think about that in the design process, you know, where does it, what needs to go in the laundry? What needs to go in the kitchen? What's going where? And try and keep it somewhere where you can have clear spaces that then you can add little bits to if you want, but it doesn't become too overwhelming. Yeah. Well, you've just recently moved, or not yes. that long ago, yeah. from Sydney yeah. to, to up here in yeah. the Byron area. So don't so even look <laughs> under the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, though, I mean, I, in relation to this kind of yeah. clutter idea is, like, what did you use as a, a guide of, like, what you hold on to yeah. and what you let go? Yeah. Okay. Because I know so it was, no, it's a really things. good question, actually. Um, so I had a fully furnished house that was much bigger than this in Sydney. And this house fully furnished that I was, um, when I was, I, that I would live in and work in when I was up here, but I was back and forth to Sydney almost every other week. And so every other week it would be listed on Airbnb and would often be rented out for a couple of days or, and it was, re, you know, there was a clarity about it because it was somewhere where I wasn't living. So there wasn't all that clutter. And I didn't want to lose that when we moved up here. And I wasn't actually sure that it would work living here because it was a lot smaller. And so I've added a whole lot more artwork in since the move. All the beds that I have here, I had doubles of them in Sydney. So for example, there, were, there was a whole lot of furniture that was all stuff that I had designed and had made through Tucky. Um, they were the pieces that I didn't think twice about letting go of because it was I was gonna bring them all up here and store them. Then I thought, this is crazy. I can always just get them made again. So it made no sense hanging on to them. So they're the things I kind of liberated, um, which made the move a little bit easier. But all the things that I held on to are all in boxes under the house and I'm putting storage in, proper shelving in under the house. It's a Queenslander, so I've got a lot of space under there. Um, and it means I'll have access to it all. So everything's packaged up into black tubs, everything's labeled, and it might be little white ceramic bits and it'll be like a filing system under the house that I can still access. So at any point I can go, oh, I've got that lovely white vase. I can go down there and no, it'll be in the box of white stuff. And that's like me and books. I kind of, you know, if I've got a big bookshelf, which I don't have at this house at the moment, um, everything's color blocked because I remember books by the color of their, 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 their cover. So everything would be, it'd be this rainbow pattern of shelves. Um, 
I let a whole lot of stuff go. I gave stuff away to friends. I sold a whole lot of stuff through Instagram, the bigger furniture pieces, which was great. Um, but all the things that I held on to, I held on to because I thought I'll never find that again. They were funny little old things or things, sentimental things that I'd been given. Um, and there's a lot of stuff under the house. I'm a, I'm a real magpie, but it was really cleansing to go through it all and clear it. And, you know, years of collecting stuff for styling shoots and props and, you know, which I had in areas in the house kind of stored already um, and I would swap in and out of. And, um, so it was a big process, the move. It was huge. Um, but instead of just, I had so many people say to me, why don't you just get rid of it all? I was like, I can't, I can't. It's stuff that I love. Some of it's, you know, I've got a staircase in that room there that I had, it was a present from my sister from the Conran shop. It's an Indian staircase from a barn. That's now, I've had that for 25 years and I could never let go of it, even though it didn't fit in any of my other houses. Here, it's perfect. And there's a wardrobe. I've created a little wardrobe space underneath it where it leans against the wall. Um, so it's things like that where you go, I'm so glad I didn't just let that go. They're things that I love, you know, and things that I treasure. Um, but you've got to, you know, you've got to be rational and make sense of it. There's no point um, spending huge amounts on storage unless it's just not an issue um, for kind of packing up stuff that you're never going to use. But I know it's all stuff that I will look at again. So I think it was there, that was my line. If I haven't looked at it for 10 years and I look at it and don't really want to put it in the house, that's when I let it go. But if I still look at it and go, I really might want to use that one day then I hang on to it and store it. So another question I want to ask you about design is that obviously people are finding you probably, you know, you're sort of known within certain circles and I guess that's how people, you're getting your clients. Do they give you carte blanche or is it a very much a collaborative process um, or how, how do people I've approach Since I've been you? up here, um, it's been interesting. Clients have come and had a meeting at the house here, which becomes like a kind of, almost like a, it's, it's like my book in itself. It's like my um, portfolio because they come in here, they get a sense of what I do because obviously I've been very specific about doing this house exactly how I love to live and what I love. Um, and that has been literally the switch that's made them gone, oh my God, this is what we want. Yep. And carte blanche to a certain degree, but everybody lives their life slightly differently. So it's about listening, you know, and, and, um, there's an instinctive pattern and flow, but then it's about, is that going to work for that specific client? Um, so some clients might want a little bit more structure, a little bit more modern, a little, they might want to go fully kind of, you know, vintagey kind of industrially. Um, so each client is very different, but it's, because they have this house now to see as something very specific that I've done, um, that I think is like having that page that they look at going, yep, okay, now I'm confident for you to go, yep, you tell us what we should be doing and then we negotiate through that. Um, it's, made it, it's made it much easier, much, much easier. And would you say that most of them have found you through Instagram? Has that been like the um, primary yeah, tool? Well, also through friends. So I had, um, when, before I moved up here, when I was coming up here a lot, um, 
I had a few people that I already knew that I got to know and got really close to. So Kimberly, um, Kimberly Amos from Atlantic in Byron. She was just amazingly supportive. Um, Emma Lane, who has the farm. Emma um, came in one day and went, oh my God, you have to meet my friend. Um, she introduced me to her friend who immediately walked in and the place was an absolute mess and there were painting sheets down everywhere. She just went, oh my God, literally, I just want you to come and do my house. You have exactly what I'm looking for. I want it to be a home. You know, I've got four children, two grown up, two much younger. Um, and we had a lot of fun designing a cabin and doing a like a um, safari tent for them. And a, um, so, and, and then as well through Instagram, um, you know, I've had referrals from people I used to work with in Melbourne. So I've got a client up here at the moment who is from um, somebody I worked with when I first came 20 years ago to Australia who said, you need to talk to Luella. I think you'll be on the same page. You know, it's, um, they tried a whole lot of different interior designers and hadn't clicked with anybody. And they're all people I have huge respect for, massive respect. And, you know, people you would know. Um, and for some reason, they kind of clicked with me. And whether that was purely aesthetic or personality as well, um, you know, because I think both go hand in hand. You have to, when you're working on somebody's home, I think it's crucial that they feel comfortable with you and that they trust you and that they know that you're going to listen and not just dominate and dictate. Um, I know a few people who have worked with incredible people um, who have been very strong in their opinion of this is what we and at the end of it they've been a little they've been like well you've created something completely beautiful but we can't live here we're a family you know um, so yeah a kind of definitely a combination definitely a combination yeah and one last question I want to ask you um, was about energy because hmm. I've always had a sense from, even though we haven't met in person yeah. prior to today, that you, you seem like a really positive person and that you've got this kind of warmth about you, which I guess is reflected in your spaces <laughs> as well. And, um, and I actually just noticed uh, this morning, um, I think you had a post, I don't know what you did it this morning or recently on Instagram about you sort of said that when you first moved up here, you sort of took a bit of a, a break because you were settling yeah. in. And then, yeah. but, and then you sort of mentally felt like you were ready to start doing work. And then all of a sudden yeah, these opportunities totally. yeah, started that was, to come I just your felt, way. Yeah, it was last night. Yeah. That was last night. Yeah, I've, I felt this complete blockage and inability to post. And I think it's very much to do with COVID and feeling conscious of so many people having such a hard time. And I, I kind of feel guilty that I'm feeling so lucky that we were able to do this move. Um, and it's not like everything's just a breeze. It's not like I'm sitting here going, oh, I don't need to work. Everything's cruisy. I do. I really do. Um, but if, saying that, you know, things have been quiet and I've been really relaxed and just feeling like, you know what, it'll all be fine. And it is fine. You know, I'm now really busy with the most beautiful clients. And I think, and I think, you know, there's something, there's something about Byron with that sense of energy and camaraderie and that sense of manifesting. Um, you know, a year or so ago when I was up here thinking, God, I'd really like to get a bit more work up here so I can justify being up here, up in the house. And I literally started thinking about what I would want, which was like, I'd love to get another house like this and do it. But, you know, I, don't, I can't actually at the moment go and buy another house. And then 
within a week, I was introduced to somebody who wanted me to do that for them. It's like, oh my God, that was pretty good. Um, and that just seems to happen in Byron, that whole sense of a positivity. And uh, yeah, I am a very positive person and it takes a lot to kind of quash my sense of kind of sunshine, I suppose. I'm like, you know what? I'm very glass half full. Um, and I always try and take a positive approach and go, you know what? It will be all right. We've just got to find the route. Um, do you think that's always been in you yeah. or do you think? Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's innate in me and I think I've watched people who aren't like that and it really upsets me because I just think it's just, it's unnecessary and it puts them through a lot of pain. And so I think I'm specifically wanting to be the opposite. I, I, I feel it's really important to be positive because the, just the actual action of being positive has a spin-off, whether it's how you, you know, the spin-off with other people that you meet and what that does to them or and then the reaction that you get back which is then more positive and that builds you up further it's like happiness creates happiness love creates love um and i have a lot of friends around me that make me feel incredibly loved and incredibly supported um and all of that just works together to create this kind of flow um yeah, energy is a crucial part of, um, or, or feeling like there's good energy is a crucial part of my day-to-day -day existence and something I really value. And empathy, empathy is a huge thing for me um, and how that works with people and, and how that makes people respond and react. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, before you go, I've got some questions. Now, I had interviewed you many, many years ago. <laughs> Um, but I thought it might be fun just to go through these questions again because it might be interesting to compare and see, yeah. you know. Compare and contrast. Yes, yep, how, how you've kind of gone on your journey mm. since then. So it's just whatever comes um, first to your mind. Yep. So unfortunately, it's always the hardest question, which is the first, but oh, just, just go with it. <laughs> um, which is, which five words best describe you? Oh, God. So just whatever first comes to mind. Okay, um, happy, sunny creative, um, vibrant. Um, how many is that? Four. Four? Yeah. <laughs> one more, one more. Um, thoughtful. What's the best life or career lesson you've learned? Um, wow. That's, do you know what? I can remember doing this interview for you, but I can't remember for the life of me what I said. <laughs> Um, it's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. The best life or career lesson. Um, career lesson, I remember really taking on board something that uh, um, Terence Conran said, and it was about your home and how to live in it without it being cluttered. And he had this concept that if you took everything out onto the lawn, and only brought back in what you really wanted to live with, that would clarify things. And, and it's true, you don't necessarily have to take it out onto the lawn, but if you can keep working on things and simplifying things and clarifying, which is what, you know, I, I potter around the whole time tweaking things, and it's almost like a therapeutic thought process as I'm thinking about work or doing things, I might wander around the house and just tweak things and clear surfaces. And, um, and I think, 
that's something really helpful in your brain uncluttering. So, you know, the whole, you know, we all have read all the, you know, the, the, the declutter stuff over the last few years. And it is, it's hugely important. Um, I think that's something that really resonates. Um, and life lesson, ooh, life lesson. Um, I think my kids have taught me the most um, on how to juggle um, trying to be a present and good parent and accepting that maybe I have always needed to work as well or wanted need from a point of view of creatively and mentally. Um, I think it was a real lesson for me when I accepted that it was okay to work or want to work as well as being a mum of young children, you little babies. Um, and I, I realised I was a much better mother if I could be working as well. And I would then put much more energy and drive into my time with them than if I was 24-7 just a mum, um, which we all know can be incredibly gruelling and frustrating, um, but the most joyful experience of your life. And I realised that if I allowed myself to work as long as I knew that they were happy in an environment when I was working and they were fine, then I could relax, really love what I was doing with work, come back and be much happier and fulfilled and not frustrated and not, you know, I would have that release and come back and be a much better mother. So I think that was a really important life lesson for me. What's your proudest career achievement? Oh. Um, do you know what? I actually think this little house, I'm really proud of the energy in this house, which I think is a combination of finding a house that just had a lovely energy already. It's an old, it's a hundred years old. It's a little Queenslander and there was somebody amazing living here, a beautiful lady called Jan, who was Miss Bondi 1957 and she was fantastic. So that felt good immediately. But um, doing this house, working on this house at a point in my life where I was doing it on my own and it was something that was completely entirely mine and for my children, obviously, but it was a project I was doing without a partner. You know, I was with Alex at the time, but he was in England and I would talk to him a lot about it, but I was here doing it by myself and loving it. And I remember almost finishing it going, wow. I really like this space. Um, so the whole process was very therapeutic and enjoyable. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. Well done. <laughs> it is really beautiful. Thank um, you. What's been your best decision uh, in relation to anything? Anything. Yeah. My best decision. I think moving to Byron. <laughs> I think moving to Byron. Um, that has been an amazing decision. Um, and I think. It's going to be an amazing thing going forward for my children um, who have met incredible people at school. They're at the Steiner School here, which they adore. Um, you know, and obviously it was a big deal for them moving. They were leaving friends and, and they were incredible about it. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's working. It's good. I think it's going to be really, really good. Um. Who inspires you? Um, I think all of my friends inspire me um, on, a, on a kind of 
um, relationship level, be it friendships or how I watch them in their relationships or I find, and again, that boils down to energy and how they treat each other, how they treat me, how I treat them. Um, my children inspire me because they have this freedom about, about them in terms of how they make decisions, which I just think is really lovely. They're not bound by all the same constraints that I am. And it's quite good to recognize that. I go, oh my God, I have to let go of some of these things to make that decision without the clutter of worrying about this, worrying about that. Um, and on a bigger level, I think nature as a whole, you know, I can be incredibly inspired going for a beach walk and that sense of looking out to sea um, and everything, you know, it brings you back to the reality of I'm actually just this tiny little being and all of this around me is just vast and it lets all your worries just disappear. You know, it's such a cliche, but it's like a meditation um, in that it clarifies things and clears and allows you to, and the, you know, the process of walking on the beach and, you know, you've got this clarity. Um, I find that very inspiring. What are you passionate about? Um, well, I'm obviously passionate about design and spaces. Um, I'm actually really passionate about certain old cars. <laughs> I've noticed. Yeah, so, you know, I've always had this old Citroen, well, for, you know, eight or ten years. That was the only car I drove and I complete. I had one in London and then I got one here and I completely love it because it's fun. It's like driving a go-kart. So it literally makes me smile every time I drive it and I couldn't bear the thought of letting go of it. So that lived up here when I was traveling up here and it lived under the house and that was my car when I came up here. I wouldn't hire a car. I'd have that. Um, and then last year for my birthday, I bought myself from a very good friend the Frog, which is an old 1976 Land Rover um, Series 2. And I absolutely love driving that. And around here, the roads are incredible. And it literally takes me back to driving when I learned to drive in England with all the country lanes with the trees overhead. And, you know, you're driving around and you've got these curves in the road. And it's a fun experience, you know, when you're driving just in the city or in, you know, even the northern beaches. Um, it's not really driving. You're just in traffic. You're just waiting for you know you get up to second or third here you really get to drive it's real so i'm very passionate about that i love just going for a drive um yeah <laughs> what dream do you still want to fulfill um i think as much as i'm completely loving living here and we're right in bangalore in town and i love being able to get up and go right 6 30 the coffee shops are open i go and get my chai or I love being right in town, but I would also love to be on some land and have a whole load of animals. I'd rescue donkeys and alpacas and uh, I'd have geese and ducks and chickens and um, goats. Yeah, I'd, I'd have a little farm. Um, that, would, that would actually, and a big barn for my old cars. <laughs> and a horse, I'd have a horse. I grew up riding horses. So that would be something I'd throw into the mix as well, I think. Sounds like you're putting it out into the world. Who yeah, maybe I'm going to manifest this. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm completely tragic. I don't, I literally, I don't read novels. I don't read, I read magazines, design books. Um, by the time I go to bed, I mean, if I sit and try to read, I get halfway through the first page and I'm literally, eyes are shutting and I'm asleep. 
So the only time I read is when I go on a proper holiday. Um, well, what about some of your most recent design books that you've been um, reading? Well, we've got one right here. And this one I've been devouring, um, which is El Decoration Country. And there's the most incredible timber barn in here, which I just, I'm literally looking at it going, wow, where can I build that? And it's got, you know, they've put a tent up on a mezzanine level for the kid's bedroom with a rope ladder that goes across. Stuff like that I get really excited by. Um, so a lot of mine will be visual stimulation with books like that. Um, and I still love to buy print. I don't, you know, I'll sit and look at Pinterest, I'll Google stuff and look at images online, but I get a lot of joy out of sitting. Um, if I've got time, I might, you know, grab your book, for example, which I adore. It's beautiful. Um, I get a lot of joy out of sitting and slowly going through pages of print, um, which feels, you know, it's like having Bibles. It's like, you know, I've got boxes and boxes and boxes of books under the house, which there's no way I'd let them go, but I've got nowhere specific at the moment to put them. You know, I might build another room on at some point, in which case I would do a whole library wall and it would be all colour blocked. And um, yeah, so there's a, there's a constant um, array of little design mags coming in or new books. You know, I went into the bookshop in Byron yesterday and bought um, a book about Oh, Rock the Shack. And it's just got these beautiful, crazy little cabins. Half of them are built up halfway up the trees. And that, that stuff I get really excited about. Oh, I've got a big tree in the backyard. Maybe I could, you know, build a little cabin up there. What about, what are you listening to? Do you listen to podcasts or other um, Do you know music? what? I actually don't. I have music going the whole time. I just listen to Spotify. I'll do, um, I'll pick, and a lot of it will be um, 70s, 80s, a lot of older stuff. Um, which I love. Um, you know, I listen to Mumford and Sons. I'll listen to Supertramp. I'll listen to The Police. Um, um, it, it'll be a whole mishmash, you know, the Rolling Stones. Um, and it'll be playlists where I'll go in and think of an artist that I love and do the radio version of that and the playlist from the radio. So like Nick Drake, if I'm feeling like I want all gentle and peaceful, I'll go find Nick Drake and either play some of his stuff or play a radio session ooh, from his music. So lots of alternating stuff, but always um, it tends to be a mix. Like so, some of the um, playlists that are, I think, classic car road trips or there's some really good 70s and 60s ones of those where it's just a whole load of music that just seems really familiar um, and that you can sing to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's no, great. And lastly, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, to be brave. To which I think on many levels with things that I did I was. Um I think if you believe in something, you really will make it happen. And I think the older I get, the more I'm aware of that. Things it, it does seem to be this powerful force that you can manifest things. If you believe it, you talk to people, you put the word out there, it starts to happen. And that's about positive thinking and putting that energy out there. Um, I think having faith in your, trusting your gut reaction to things, which increases your confidence. And I think, um, you know, now that I'm older, you know, I'm a parent, um, 
you develop more and more confidence with the wisdom of the career you've had and the people that you've worked with and the jobs that you've worked on. Um, and confidence is so valuable, you know, confidence in yourself and your ability to do things. And that's something I really treasure now that I didn't, you know, I was always willing to give things a go, but I remember times in my really early years in my career where I would stop and go, oh my God, am I going to manage to do this? Now I just jump in and go, right, if it's creative, bring it on, I'll try it. And I know that if I can't do it, I'll work out how to get out of it and I'll pull somebody else in who can. Um, so it's that confidence of knowing as well as knowing whether you are okay to go ahead and confidently do something. It's knowing how, it's knowing when to say that's actually beyond me, for example, and that's when you bring somebody else in to work with you. Because um, I think it, there's something to be said for um, having the confidence to do that. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Luella. I've You're welcome. hearing more about your story. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. You are very welcome. Lovely to see you. All right, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this interview. Let me know what you think. You can send me a DM at Natalie Walton on Instagram or email podcast at nataliewalton.com. You'll find show notes for this episode at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast forward slash 19. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I read all of your reviews and they do mean so much to me. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast and the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded. Thanks again for joining me today. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. <laughs>